Part 1, Chapter 2 of Canada's Hundred Days with the Canadian Corps from Amiens to Mon, August 8th to November 11th, 1918. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ian Meyer. Canada's Hundred Days by John Livesay. Part 1, Chapter 2. The Canadian Corps Ready for Battle. It is the purpose of this book to trace the leading part the Canadian Corps played in the Battle of Amiens and in the subsequent great offensives that carried it from Arras through the Drocourt-Cant line across the Canal du Nord over the stricken field of Cambrai and thence to Valenciennes and Mont. In those proud days of victory, no less than in the long stern years of trench warfare, it lived up to its great reputation. Its deeds speak for themselves. As that tried soldier, the King of the Belgians, remarked in Mont, there is no corps in Europe of higher renown. In the words of its commander, Sir Arthur Currie, quote, In the last two years of strenuous fighting, the Canadian Corps never lost a gun, never failed to take its objective, and has never been driven from a foot of ground it has once consolidated. End of quote. What was the Canadian Corps doing in the spring and summer of 1918? Little was heard of it during the great spring drive, nor through May, June, and July. People at home were asking what was the matter. Had it not yet got over its bloody wounds of Passchendaele? Was it not to be thrown in to stiffen the weakening line? On August 8, it was to burst upon their consciousness almost with the force of a blow. After the hard-won victory of Passchendaele in October 1917, the Canadian Corps returned to its old line before Lens and on the Vimy Ridge where an offensive had been planned just before it had been moved north. Corps headquarters returned to Kumblon Lab and remained there throughout the winter and spring months, the time being employed in holding and strengthening the Vimy front and in assimilating reinforcements to make good the wastage. When the March offensive came, it was anticipated that the attack would develop north of Arras, and the sector became vitally important because if this pivot of our defense went, there might be no stopping short of the sea. Behind this there was another vital consideration. This story may be apocryphal, it does not matter, for in essence it is true. Folk was asked to use the Canadian Corps to stem the tide of the invasion. No, came the reply, or so the story goes. I cannot afford to do that. By their valour the Canadian troops won back at Vimy the most valuable of our remaining coal fields. These are the nerve centre of France. We cannot afford to entrust their defence out of the hands of my Canadians. In his dispatch of July 8, 1918, Sir Douglas Haig wrote that behind the Vimy Ridge, quote, lay the northern collieries of France and certain tactical features which cover our lateral communications. Here, little or no ground could be given up, end of quote. In the same connection, the Canadian Corps commander, Sir Arthur Currie, in his interim report to the operations of the Corps during 1918, writes, quote, a comparative shallow advance beyond Vimy Ridge would have stopped the operations of the collieries, paralyzing the production of war material in France. On the other hand, a deep penetration at that point by bringing the Amiens-Bethune railway and main road under fire would have placed the British Army in a critical position by threatening to cut it in two and by depriving it of vital lateral communication. The tactical and strategical results to be gained by a moderate success at that point were so far reaching in effect that, notwithstanding the natural difficulties confronting an attack on that sector, 
it was fully expected, i.e. before the March offensive developed, that the German offensive would be directed against this, the central part of the British front. End of quote. He goes on to tell of the great defensive works built up by the Canadian Corps on the Vimy front during the winter in anticipation of the 1918 enemy spring drive. A story of interest in itself, but not to be described in detail here. It must suffice to say that if the blow had fallen in this sector, the result would have been far different to what befell at San Quentin. After March 21, the pressure became very great and there was a tendency to throw in divisions of the Canadian Corps wherever needed. Quote, Thus, under the pressure of circumstances, writes Arthur Curry of the situation at the end of March, the four Canadian divisions were to be removed from my command, placed in two different armies, 3rd and 1st, and under the command of three different corps, 6, 17, and 13. This disposition of the Canadian troops was not satisfactory, and on receipt of the orders above referred to, I made strong representation to the First Army and offered suggestions which to my mind would reconcile my claims from the standpoint of Canadian policy with the tactical and administrative requirements of the moment. End of quote. As a consequence, the 1st, 3rd, and 4th Canadian divisions were reunited under his command and given a very extended line. Quote, From April 10 until relieved May 7, the Corps held a line exceeding 29,000 yards in length. The 2nd Canadian Division, then with the 6th Corps, was holding 6,000 yards of front, making a total length of 35,000 yards of front by the 4 Canadian Divisions. The total length of the line held by the British Army between the Oise and the sea was approximately 100 miles. Therefore, the Canadian troops were holding approximately one-fifth of the total front. Without wishing to draw from this fact any exaggerated conclusion, it is pointed out that although the Canadian Corps did not, during this period, have to repulse any German attacks on its front, it nevertheless played a worthy part of its strength during that period. End of quote. But although the Canadian infantry did not take active part in repelling the great enemy drive, its other arms were worthily represented. At 11 p.m. on the night of March 22-23, in the blackest hours of the Somme fighting, word came to the Canadian Corps headquarters for the 1st Canadian Motor Machine Gun Brigade, then in the line on the Vimy sector, to be withdrawn and move south to the 5th Army area. By the following midnight, all its batteries were in action on a 35-mile front east of Amiens, having traveled over 100 miles during the day. Sir Arthur Curry describes its activities as follows, quote, The 1st CMMG Brigade, Lieutenant Colonel W.K. Walker, under orders of the 5th and later the 4th Army, was ordered to fight a rearguard action to delay the advance of the enemy and to fill dangerous gaps on the army fronts. For 19 days, that unit was continuously in action north and south of the Somme, fighting against overwhelming odds. Using to the utmost its great mobility, it fought over 200 square miles of territory. It is difficult to appraise to its correct extent the influence, material and moral, that the 40 machine guns of that unit had in the events which were then taking place. The losses amounted to about 75% of the trench strength of the unit, and to keep it in being throughout that fighting, I authorized its reinforcement of, by personnel of the infantry branch of the Canadian Machine Gun Corps. End of quote. 
fighting over the same ground and with equal gallantry was the Canadian Cavalry Brigade attached to the British Cavalry Corps. The brilliant work of both arms in the desperate and successful effort to stem the enemy hordes will ever be a proud chapter in the Canadian military annals. On May 7, the Canadian Corps, with the exception of the 2nd Canadian Division, still in the line in the 3rd Army area, was relieved and placed in the General Headquarters Reserve in the 1st Army area. This movement is explained by the Times history as follows, quote, After consultation with the commanders of the 1st and 2nd Armies at the more northern portions of our line, it was determined that each should contribute what divisions could be spared to form a general reserve for the British Army for use where it might be required. The Canadian Corps formed part of this force and was intended for counter-attack in case the enemy broke through the British front. Its place of assembly was in front of Amia. End of quote. Early in May, Canadian Corps headquarters moved to Perna and on May 25th to Bria. There followed a period of intensive training in the tactics of the offensive, the three divisions not in the line being concentrated in the area, Monchy, Breton, Longueray, Le Courat, Divel, Ochel, Chateau de la Haye. While they are there, we may inquire briefly into the causes that led to the recognition of the Canadians as a corps d'elite, to be used as storm or shock troops in desperate or critical adventures. Canada's first contingent has been described as a mob of amateur soldiers, passionately inspired to give their all for a great cause. Discipline was lax, the officers unproved, and though the stuff was there, it took time to transmute it into the perfect fighting machine it became. Take the simple matter of saluting. To men of democratic birth and habit of mind, saluting had in it something of kowtow. To the young officer it seemed an insult to his men, the tried comrades of his civil life, and they in turn might resent the implication of a social distinction that had no existence in fact. And so for long saluting was a perfunctory affair. But there came certain officers who explained patiently and carefully that saluting was of the essence of military life that the constant exercise it affords of vigilance and smartness is part and parcel of the making of a good soldier. At the end of the war there was no smarter saluting in the British Army than that of the Canadians, as there was no better marching regiments, no superior staff work, no alerter intelligence, nor more scientific gunnery. The Canadian Corps owes an immense debt to its former commander, Sir Julian Bing, who first welded it into a perfectly coordinated fighting machine knit together in spirit and applying to all its problems and difficulties the idea of a common loyalty to the Corps. It was not long when, in the shock of battle, the Canadian Corps came into a full appreciation of its own strength and superiority over the foe. Passchendaele had been the fast of these occasions. On that field fell many brave young Canadians, but the Corps went on to victory, not daunted by loss nor unduly elated by success. A number of special causes contributed to the preeminence of the Canadian Corps. As good as the old guards, they said in London. One was that it was at full strength throughout. Where owing to the waste of war, other corps were obliged to cut down the number of their bayonets, the Canadian Corps always maintained its 48 battalions of infantry, divided into 12 brigades and 4 divisions, with unusual strength in artillery and corps troops. Right up to the Battle of Cambrai, reinforcements of trained men were always forthcoming, and this proved the wisdom which resisted proposals to create the 5th Canadian Infantry Division, and then a 6th, 
with the ultimate prospect of two-week corps of three divisions each. By a rather happy chance, this proposal went so far as the actual formation in the depots in England of the 5th Division, whose trained units proved highly valuable reinforcements, while the 5th Canadian Division artillery was brought over to France intact, and thus the Canadian Corps had its disposal no less than five artillery divisions, besides a number of heavy artillery brigades throughout these operations. Much of the success during the intensive fighting to follow was due to the great strengthening the Canadian Corps received during the winter and spring of 1918. On August 8, the Corps went into action stronger numerically than any other Corps in Europe. How this was brought about and in the face of what dangers is best explained in Sir Arthur Curry's own words, quote, At this time, i.e. the winter of 1917-18, the British Army was undergoing far-reaching alterations in its organization. The situation as regards manpower appeared to be such that, in order to maintain in the field the same number of divisions, it was necessary to reorganize the infantry brigades from a four-battalion basis to a three-battalion basis. Although the situation of the Canadians regarding reinforcements appeared to be satisfactory, so long as the number of divisions in the field was not increased, a proposal was made to adopt an organization similar to the British, that is, to reduce the number of battalions in the Canadian Infantry Brigades from four to three. Concurrent with this change, it was proposed to increase the number of Canadian divisions in the field from four to six. I did not think this proposal was warranted by our experience in the field, and I was quite certain that, owing to the severity of losses suffered in modern battles, the manpower of Canada was not sufficient to meet the increased exposure to casualties consequent on the increased number of Canadian divisions in the field. I represented very strongly my views to the Minister, Overseas Military Forces of Canada, and on further consideration, it was decided to drop this project and to accept instead my counter-proposal, these, to increase the establishment of the Canadian Infantry Battalion by 100 of all ranks to proceed with the reorganization of the engineers and machine gun services, and to grant the various amendments suggested by the establishments of other arms and branches. I am glad to be able to say that my proposal regarding the reorganization of the engineer services, machine guns, etc., as well as the increase of strength of the infantry battalions, received the favorable consideration and support of the commander-in-chief." Commenting on this, the Canadian Overseas Minister, Sir Edward Kemp, says, quote, The Canadian Corps in the existing formation had proved itself a smooth-running machine of tremendous striking power, and any radical alteration in its constitution might have resulted in a reduction of such power without any compensating advantages. At a time of national crisis, such as that in the spring of 1918, it would not have been permissible to allow sentiment to stand in the way of any change likely to further the common cause. Every soldier would have been prepared to sacrifice the pride which he had in his particular brigade and in the Corps as a whole. At the same time, it should be a matter of deep gratification to all Canadians that, for practical reasons, it was possible to avert what, from a sentimental point of view, would have almost amounted to a national calamity, namely the breaking up of the Corps, which as such had gained a unique position among the armies of the Western Front. End of quote. For six divisions meant two weak Corps instead of one strong one. It must have meant loss of that Corps spirit that made the Canadian Corps a thing apart. 
More valuable even than its material strength was the fact that it was perhaps the only corps in the British Army to maintain its identity throughout all its units, its divisions, its brigades, its battalions, its leaders, its staff, and the whole body of officers and rank and file. Other corps had little about them permanent but their name and their staff. They became the clearinghouse for divisions brought from all quarters, used for a special purpose, and then removed elsewhere. This resulted inevitably in lack of corps spirit, so conspicuously present throughout the Canadian Corps. The average Canadian citizen thinks in terms of the Canadian forces or the Canadian Army. He does not appreciate just how every Canadian soldier cherishes the idea of the Canadian Corps. It may serve to make the point clear by quoting from the report of Sir Edward Kemp referred to above, quote, the word Corps is an abbreviation of the term Army Corps, and at present is a very uncertain and indefinite military term. In the military sense today, it means a formation consisting of a headquarters from two to six divisions, a varying number of corps troops composed of all arms, and is ordinarily commanded by a lieutenant general. Army Corps in the British Army during this war have never been stable units, varying month by month and often day by day as to their composition, division and corps troops being very frequently transferred from corps to corps. The units composing the Canadian Corps have, however, been so far fortunate as to have been mostly under the same commander and administered by the same staffs. Canadian units and formations have been taught to look upon themselves as belonging to the Canadian Corps, and whilst away from the Corps have been spoken of as being attached to other corps, and in consequence a very true esprit de corps has sprung up amongst all Canadian units administered by the Canadian Corps headquarters." End of quote. We have seen how the corps commander fought hard to preserve the corps as an entity. It meant something more than a hundred thousand men or so of all arms. In illustration a little digression may be permitted. At a later day, a certain infantry unit had the honor of first entering Cambrai. A newspaper correspondent proceeded to congratulate a company officer on the work of his battalion. Don't say that, he said. It isn't the 5th Canadian Mounted Rifles. It isn't even the 8th Brigade or the 3rd Canadian Division. It's the good old Corps that's captured Cambrai. You know our motto, one for all and all for one. There was something rather fine about this at such an hour when men's emotions run high, but it was the instinctive spirit of the Canadian soldier. End of Part 1, Chapter 2